should be no surprise to anyone that's been here very long. You know that I preached through books, and we started Romans uh, not so many weeks ago. We are in chapter 4. And uh, if you remember from where we were last time that the main message that we got from the beginning verses in chapter 4 were that uh, the gospel in essence had been around for a very long time. As a matter of fact, I would say the gospel in essence has been around ever since the Garden of Eden. That God showed grace to Adam and Eve after they fell into sin and that is the very basis for the gospel, this concept of grace which we're going to go into a little bit more today. But, but uh, the Apostle Paul used two particular uh, fathers of the faith uh, from the Old Testament to press home a particular point. Because remember in the early church that there was really division. And one of the reasons that we read Ephesians chapter 2 this morning is so we would be reminded that even though there was this transition period that took place in the days of Jesus and the days of the apostles when things were going from the Old Testament into the New Testament, and, and, and people had the idea that a lot of the things that were taught by the apostles and by Jesus were new, that we need to understand something, that all the preaching that Jesus did and all the preaching the apostles did came from the Old Testament scriptures. from the Law and the Prophets. And what Paul argues in the first part of chapter 4 is that the gospel, in essence, is not something new. That Abraham was saved by faith. And it was by faith that Abraham was described or declared by God to be righteous. Because his faith rested in God. Now, the reality is this, is you and I know a lot more of the big picture than Abraham did. God revealed some things to him, revealed particular things to him. But the truth is this, as we sit on the other end of God's revelation, his word before us, and so there's a sense in which we have more information than Abraham did. But it doesn't change the fundamental Proof that Abraham was not saved because of his own works, not saved upon this, not saved because of that. He was saved simply because he placed his faith in God, not in himself, not in his own sense of his goodness, not in his own sense of self-righteousness, etc. Uh, Paul makes the same example of King David. King David, who wrote Psalm 14 and Psalm 51, which declares that there is no one who does righteousness. No, not one. Not one single one. David knew that that applied to him as well. So something that should have been clear to everyone was this, is that is that it is faith in God that saves. None of us have the ability to save ourselves. As a matter of fact, without God acting in us, none of us would have the desire to save ourselves. The Old Testament screams over and over again that we need a Savior. 
that we must, in fact, have a Savior. The Old Testament saints were waiting for that Savior to come. That Savior came in the person of Jesus Christ. We sit on the other side of that coming. And we know that he's returned to heaven right now, and he sits on the, the throne of, at the right hand of God the Father, and all power and authority in heaven and earth have been granted unto him. But we know as well that one of these days he is going to return to the earth. And everyone that's ever lived on that day is going to stand before him in judgment. Believers don't have to fear that judgment because they're saved by the same faith that saved Abraham and the same faith that saved David. Not faith in themselves, but faith in God. The challenge before all of us this morning is, is that, do we have that faith? One of the things that he's made clear up to this point, too, and that is this, is remember, he's writing to Jewish people, and, and by the time uh, that Jesus came on the scene, Ju Judaism had become very, very legalistic. I mean, it was all about the law. It's all about doing the law, and it's no longer about doing the law of Scripture. It was about doing the law of the rabbis and of the Pharisees. A law that had become such a burden to people, it was like being imprisoned. It was spiritually suffocating to people. The concept of faith was completely missing from the picture. Salvation became something that you earned, something that you gained by doing the law. It's amazing that anyone would ever believe that because anyone that knows anything about the law understands that none of us does the law perfectly and what is required is perfect obedience. It's not that uh, there's some standard and we need to come close to that standard. In other words, we need to do pretty well or well, well enough is how some people would think about it. I just have to be good enough to meet the standard. But what I'm telling you this morning, and I'm telling you this because this is what Scripture says, and that is that none of us is well enough on our own. None of us comes close to being good enough on our own. We have all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. That's declared about every one of us. Paul said that back in Romans chapter 3, verse 23. We've all sinned, and that means every single person has all sinned, and all of us has fallen short of God's glory. We all need a Savior to be saved, and without that, we cannot be saved. We will not be saved. How do we gain what that Savior has done for us? It is through faith. Faith in God not faith in ourselves, not faith in our own abilities, faith that he will be true to his promise in saving us. There's a sense in which the Jewish people, by the time Jesus came on this, the scene, believed that it was not only by the law, keeping the law, but, but also by the law of circumcision, that salvation came to them. There was a sense in which they believed that if they were circumcised, and you need to understand that in the Old Testament, the status of the man as far as the, the, man as far as the family went, whatever 
basically applied to the man, applied to his whole family as well. And so, so what I would say to you is the circumcision of the father was passed on certainly to the, to the, to the male children because we need to understand that that whole, that whole sacrament of circumcision was introduced by God to Abraham. Now, Abraham was 100 years old when he was circumcised. There were Jews living in the days of Jesus who, in essence, believed that they were saved simply because they were circumcised. One of the fears that, that very often Christians have today is this, is there are people out there who believe this. I, if you share the gospel with people, you're going to hear this at least on occasion. And you can ask people, what is it that makes you saved or not saved? And there will be people who will say this, that I was baptized as an infant. Or I was baptized when I was 10 years old. Yes, maybe I've lived the rest of my life in a sense, not really acknowledging God and worshiping God and serving God, but serving myself in essence. But I know that I'm, I'm going to heaven. Why? Because I was baptized when I was younger. And one of the messages that Jesus brought was this, is no, 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 no. Now, we understand that these sacraments, what they do is they set people apart before God into a special place, what we would call the community of God. In other words, it makes them part of what we call the visible church. But at the same time, they do not save anybody. Baptism doesn't save anybody. Baptism hasn't ever saved anybody. We sit in church this morning, and then there are a lot of churches around here that would really question some of our practices. And one of our practices is this, is we, we, we baptize our infants. Many of you have Baptist backgrounds. I did. Lord, I both grew up in Baptist churches. The only thing that we ever heard was, no, 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 no. You don't, you don't put water on young kids. You don't put it on babies. And the reason is the Bible never tells us specifically to do that. Now, that sounds like a good argument, doesn't it? I mean, we should be doing what God tells us to do, and we should not be doing what God tells us not to do, right? So there is some degree of a sense of expectation that if God specifically wanted us to do that, then he would tell us specifically in the New Testament that he does not do that. In other words, the argument... That sounds very logical and very reasonable to a lot of people. If God wanted me to do something, he would tell me specifically that's what he wants me to do. But let me just say this to you. You need to understand that if you have to have that mentality that we don't baptize infants, you are in the minority, it's the, the vast minority in regard to Christian believers over the last 2,000 years. The vast majority of Christians have applied baptism not only to themselves, but to their children. Circumcision was the sign of the covenant in the Old Testament. It was applied to male children eight days old. 
not at the time maybe they profess faith in God. The reason, if you ever want to know the reason why we baptize our children, is because God has said the covenant sign shall be applied to my people and to their children. And he has never said, stop doing that. See, there's even greater argument to be made from the other direction, and that is this. The sign has been applied for generation after generation for thousands of years. If God decided the covenant sign was no longer to be applied to infants, he would tell us. He has not done that. Now let me tell you something. Infant baptism is not something that I would die over. In other words, I would agree with you. It would be really nice if Scripture said somewhere, you shall baptize your infants. I would love to have that passage to give to you this morning. It's not there. But that does not mean that there's not a very strong biblical argument for it. And a lot of it has to do with our understanding that baptism doesn't save anybody. When we baptize infants, it does not save them. But it does seal them in the promises of God. And it does set them apart from everybody else. God no longer looks upon those children in the same way that he does others. There's a sense in which they're set apart in a special place by him. It doesn't assure their salvation. It doesn't mean they're ever going to believe. But they are brought into the covenant community, just as they were brought into the covenant community in Old Testament Israel. They're brought into the covenant community of the church. And that's our hope, and it's our prayer that as time progresses, the things that are represented and sealed in baptism would become reality for these young people. And sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. Now, you may ask me why I'm even going into this. It's because Paul has really emphasized circumcision here in chapter 3 or chapter 4 in Romans. Verse 9, I just want to read a little bit. Is this the blessing then upon the circumcised or upon the uncircumcised? Faith was reckoned to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it reckoned? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. That Abraham was a believer for 14 years before circumcision was applied even to him. So was it the circumcision that saved him? This is his argument to Jews that are living in the day. You believe that circumcision saves you. Circumcision didn't save Abraham. He was saved before he was circumcised for 14 years. He received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of faith, which is exactly how we would define baptism. Baptism is a seal of the righteousness that comes by faith. For what reason? That he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised. 
that righteousness might be reckoned to them. In other words, what Paul is saying here is there are two groups of people who've been saved all along. Some of them were circumcised, some of them weren't. But they were all saved. We need to understand something. Again, that baptism doesn't save anybody. There are people who will go to heaven who haven't been baptized. Probably not too many. It's conceivable that there could be, let me ask you something, was the thief on the cross baptized? What did Jesus say to him? Today you will be in paradise with me. Okay. This is a good example of what we're talking about here. One of the things that bothers me very often is even today, people continue to try to, to to build this wall between Jewish believers and Gentile believers. I think that does a disservice to Christ. I I don't think that distinction should be made amongst believers anymore at all. That's what we were reading in Ephesians chapter 2, and that is that that the two that were divided, the Jews and the Gentiles, those of of faith, no longer. Together, being built into one house, not a divided house, one house. Jewish believers and Gentile believers together, one body in Christ. Verse 13, I know, but we've already been through all this. We haven't even gotten into what we were going to do this morning. That's not where we're getting kind of there now. Verse 13, for the promise to Abraham or his descendants that he would be heir to the world was not through the law. Just think about this. Did Abraham have the law? Did God give the law in Abraham's day? Did you know that for the 500 years went by between the time that Abraham lived And Moses lived when God gave the law. If we believe that the law saves people, we we must have the idea that no one was saved between Abraham and Moses, not anybody. See, the law itself has not the power to save anybody. And the law was given by God for a number of reasons. Paul alludes to some of those later on in the book of Romans. And one of those is this, is if we we didn't have the law, how would we know what sin is? It tells us, it shows us what is sinful. tells us how God looks upon these matters. But see, there was one thing that the Jewish people at large had missed in regard to the law. And we talked about this last time, and that is this, is the law, in essence, is a mirror that we look into, and it shows us how sinful we are. It condemns every one of us. No exceptions. It helps us to see 
the sin that's in us. It helps us to see that we have a sinful nature. And just remember, Jesus came preaching and teaching, and the apostles were preaching and teaching very often when they were talking to Jewish people to a bunch of legalists who believed that by circumcision and by the law, they were saved. And what Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount is just demonstrates to them over and over again in the rest of his teaching that they grossly misunderstood the purpose of the law, and that purpose was to show them their utter and absolute need of a Savior. Because when we see the law, we read the law, we understand that we don't keep it. There are no pure people in this world. There are no pure people in this room. That we are still sinners, every one of us. All people are sinners, but they're two different class of sinners. There are unsafe sinners and they're safe sinners. The unsafe sinners are all those people who believe that they can do it on their own or they don't have anything to take care of. There's, there's not a God, there's no nothing or whatever, and they're sitting in good shape and this, that, and the other, that when they die, that's going to be the end of everything, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But there are a lot of people in this world that are very religious and they're very legalistic at the same time. Christianity is different than every other religion in at least two ways. One of those is this, is every other religion keeps God at a distance. It says you can't have, he's, he's so exalted, you can't have a living, breathing, loving, intimate relationship with him. Christianity says that, that no, that God loves you and you can love the Lord and you can have a an unbelievably good and great and eternal relationship with one another. There's nothing that should anger you and I any more than when Christians take Christianity and change it into just another works-based religion because every other religion is based upon your works. You making the standard, you following the rules, What Christianity says is this, is there are rules, by the way. God's law is God's law. But oh, by the way, you don't keep it. If you're going to be saved, that righteousness that is necessary must come from outside you. This is what Abraham knew. Abraham knew he was not righteous. Did Abraham live a perfect life? Did Abraham do some really dirty things? Remember when Abraham and Sarai first came to, Sarah later, came to uh, Canaan, and there was a famine there, and they wound up going down to Egypt. Remember the little scheme they came up with? They were going to lie about who Sarah was, saying that she was Abraham's sister because they were in Pharaoh, because she was a beautiful woman, that, you know, was the Pharaoh or one of the Egyptians was just going to think, you know, want her and, and, and whatever. And it was, it was Abraham's way of protecting his life. So he lied. And she lied. And that was not the last time. 
Later on in life, they did the same thing, even after God had done a lot more in their lives. The Philistine king, Abimelech, same deal. Later, much later. See, Abraham doesn't serve as an example of perfect righteousness. Neither did any of the other Old Testament saints. He served as an example of someone who knew he could not save himself. That if he were to be saved, God was going to have to do it. And he trusted him to do that. Remember, God made Abraham all of these promises. Let me just read some. Verse 13, the promise of Abraham, or to his descendants, that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, neither is there violation. For this reason, it is by faith that it might be in accordance with grace, in order that the promise may be certain to all those descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, a father of many nations have I made you in the sight of him who he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. In hope against hope, he believed in order that he might become a father of many nations according to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. And without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body. Now as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, in the deadness of Sarah's womb, yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully assured that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. Therefore, also it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was reckoned to him, but for our sake also to whom it will be reckoned uh, as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he who was delivered because of our transgressions and was raised the cause of our justification. And there you have it in black and white. God had made promises to Abraham. What were those promises? Well, one of those was the land. Another one was that he was going to make his name great. Another one was that he was going to make him into a great nation. And there was another one. The final one was this, is that through him, all of the families of the earth would be blessed. Meaning all people, not just those of blood descent down from him but all the families of the world would be blessed through him, not because of what Abraham did, not because of what the law did, but because of what Jesus Christ did. Do you understand this? That Jesus is the one who did the law perfectly. Not for himself, because he, in fact, is the law. He's the author of the law. He's God eternal. 
He kept it for us. That through our faith in Him, we would be forgiven of all of our transgressions forevermore. Knowing that only through Him that we will stand before God, there is no doubt about that. But we will not be judged because of our sins, because God has already judged Jesus for the sins of those who place their faith and trust and hope in him. The gospel is an amazing thing. There is absolutely nothing like it. I just want to talk about verse 16 for a few minutes. For this reason, it is by faith that it might be in accordance with grace. We talk about grace a lot around here. You're going to find that in Reformed churches, that grace is one of the most popular topics that we speak about. And I've given you a definition of what grace is. And it comes down to being unmerited, completely, totally, undeserved, unwarranted, unearned favor freely shown in other words if you're saved you're saved by grace and grace only because God has saved you not because you saved yourself he has done everything necessary to make it a reality. Yes, you come to faith, and yes, you have to profess faith, but you will never do that unless he works in you first to bring you there. You must be born first again for that to even happen. Raised from spiritual deadness to spiritual life. Only God has such power. Only God can do that. Grace is all about free will. And there's so many people that demand that people have a free will. And let me just tell you, we don't have a free will. The, uh, there is no mention in the Bible of people having a free will. The, the, the way that our nature is described over and over again in Scripture is that we are in bondage to sin. We're enslaved to sin. We're dead in our trespasses. Let me ask you something. Can a dead person raise themselves to life? No. We know that. We know once someone's dead, they're dead. They, can, they can't do anything. They can't will that they would live again. They certainly can't make themselves come to life again. But very often we think people have the ability to do that when it comes to spiritual matters. And the answer to the question, can that happen? And the answer is no. That God is the life giver, and before we can have spiritual life, God has got to breathe us into life. He's got to bring life into that which is dead.
I really believe this, that out of, I mean, there's no other way that God could have saved people than the way he did. Because reality is this, is if he left it completely to us and he didn't do anything else, no one would have been saved. Not one person. Because that would require a dead person to breathe life into themselves. To bring themselves to life again. And we all know that's absolute nonsense, but there are a lot of people who believe that. See, the gospel is all about free will, but it's not about man's free will. It's about the free and sovereign will of God himself. And it's also to keep us from being prideful. So that no one can say, I saved myself. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul tells us that. We read that this morning. That no one, no one, not one single person, not one single soul that has ever lived, that has been saved, has one inkling of anything to boast to other people about. There is no place for pride. There is no place for arrogance. There is no place for anybody snubbing other people because they're saved and other people are not. It's knowing that only by the grace of God go I. Only by the grace of God am I saved. And without that grace, I would not be saved. I would still be out there. that God would get all of the glory. Because he's deserving of it. Because he's done it. Don't take credit for it yourself. If you're saved, give all the credit to God. He saved you because he has loved you for all of eternity. You have been in his mind. There wasn't a beginning. You have always been in his mind. And he has done everything necessary to bring you to himself. He loves you with an unbelieving endearment, a love that we can't even begin to conceive of. He has longed for you. He has sought you out. He has brought you to himself. And because that is true, he will not, he never will let you go. Your salvation does not rest upon your abilities. Your salvation rests upon the promise of God. That promise of eternal life in paradise with him. We celebrate the Lord's Supper, the typically the second Sunday of every month because I was not here last week and I had 
I'd spoken with Kevin Gardner about doing it because he's not a pastor of a church. He works for Ligonier Ministry. He's one of the editors of Table Talk magazine. Uh, but he didn't feel comfortable doing it yet because he hasn't been ordained that long and because he's not a pastor of a church, he actually had not done it before. So we didn't have it last week. We're doing it this morning. 